Hello, g'day, and welcome to Party in China, Series 2, Episode 29. <clears throat> I do beg your pardon, I have a cold. <clears throat> but I'll edit out any more disgusting noises than that. This episode begins with me considering a move to the far northwest of the province of Jiangsu, specifically to the city of Xuzhou, where I was liking everything I saw, including my vivacious guide, Amber. After the bizarre but stimulating lingerie incident, just to be clear, it was the instant that was bizarre and the lingerie that was stimulating. The lingerie wasn't bizarre. In fact, my imagination struggles when I try and conjure up bizarre lingerie. Now, what would that be? A sexy suit of armor? Chewbacca in a chemise? I don't know, I'm very straightforward in these matters. As long as the woman is happy and willing, she can be wearing whatever she likes. Ugg boots and a beanie, as far as I'm concerned. That, in fact, is a surprisingly erotic combination. Hello to Cecilia, if you're listening. It is true that I'm quite naive in some ways. The only thing I know about kinky sexual behaviour is that if she tickles you with an emu feather, it's kinky. If she brings the whole emu to bed, that's a fetish. Hello, Tessa, if you're listening. Any what, we went window shopping at several less titillating haberdasheries until Amber admitted that we were only killing time. Until the principal, Mr. Yu, is ready to meet you. I judged her English good enough to enjoy a bit of who's on first wordplay about Mr. Yu meeting you. Yeah, that didn't work. At one point I said something to Amber, received no reply, and discovered that she was no longer at my side. I doubled back to glimpse her knee-high red patent leather boots ascending a flight of stairs inside a passageway between two shops. Only then did I notice the Aston sign above the doorway and followed her inwards and upwards into the oldest Aston school in Suzhou. Like most buildings in rural China, it was vaguely decrepit, but did not appear yet ripe for collapse. Amber showed me a couple of small classrooms and a kitchen. The school had been converted from an apartment. Not ideal, but I could see how it would work as long as there weren't too many students. And at that moment, there were no students at all. The only occupant was Mr. Yu, sequestered in a glass-sided cubicle in the corner of the largest room, which doubled as the lobby. What was it about Aston and these glass offices? Mr. Yu was on the phone, but not speaking. Whether he was on hold or was on a power trip to keep me waiting wasn't clear, but he clearly wasn't ready for me. So Amber and I went back downstairs and out for another walk, but only got as far as the Walmart conveniently situated right across the road, where I bought some German, Danish and English beers, none of which I could find in Ganyu, two cans of each. 
When I expressed delight at this find, Amber told me that the Carrefour, the French supermarket chain, on the next block had a much bigger range of ales, and I swooned at the thought. Her phone rang and we were summoned back to the school by Mr. Yu, who saw my cans and said that he'd lived in Canada for three years and still hadn't drunk that much beer. But he said it in Chinese for Amber to translate, so he hadn't spent those three years perfecting his English. Well, maybe he lived in Montreal, and he could have expressed his disapproval very well en français. However, despite this disapproval, he drove us to a second school which was also small, but much more modern and surrounded by a pretty park. And then to a third, which was twice as large, still under construction, but looked like it would be state-of-the-art technologically. Via Amber, Mr. Yu explained that I might teach at all of them, depending on how many other foreign teachers he could recruit to staff his burgeoning empire. Not in those words, of course. As we drove between schools, we stopped at various touristy spots so I could act suitably impressed. And it was easy acting. Nothing to trouble the Academy voters. I really liked the place. One sightseeing sight worth seeing was a steel and glass concert hall on either a promontory or perhaps its own little island. I only saw it from the opposite shore, so I couldn't tell. Amber said that it would make me feel at home because it was just like my Sydney Opera House. Comparing these two was ludicrous, but I was having such a good time, I didn't even laugh in her pretty face. We also drove through large areas of waterside restaurants and bars that were quiet then but looked like great fun in warmer months. Amber told me that the bullet train took you to Beijing in six hours and Shanghai in only a few. She pointed out the high-rise building in the city centre which was where my modern apartment would be and where I'd be staying that night, but I objected that I'd planned to return that same evening. Not to Gan Yu, but to Lian Yung Gang and the Enjoy Bar to rendezvous with the marvellous Elena. Not that I told them that bit. For some reason, this miscommunication annoyed Mr. Yu, so I postponed mentioning the fact that I wanted to live alone. I'm sure it sounds antisocial to you, and some of my fellow teachers were very nice people who'd probably make very nice flatmates. But it was undeniable that I was in my early 50s and they were in their late 20s, two very different stages of life. Anyway, I decided to leave that battle for another day. Xuzhou seemed great, but it is still in China. So a couple of our touristy activities were predictably peculiar. We stopped in a large, empty car park and crossed a main road skirting the shoreline to descend some stairs to a footpath which was below the water level of the lake. A section of the shore had been dammed off and the path led, maze-like, to an open area where the dam wall had windows from floor to where the ceiling would have been if it hadn't been open air. 
The brown water and greeny-brown reeds seemed motionless beneath the thin crust of dirty ice, just as motionless as the dozens and dozens of fish, which were surely dead. Unless fish can hibernate through winter, can they? I don't know. Perhaps a listening ichthyologist could tell us. Both Amber and Mr. Yu's demeanour demonstrated that they were very proud of this engineering wonder. I supposed I'd come back in summer and see if it made any more sense to me then. At the time, I merely amused myself by standing on tiptoe, so my eye level was ice level, and I could see both above and below the frozen surface simultaneously. Then I held Amber up in front of me so she could have a go too. Mr. Yu did not want a turn. He was quite insistent upon it. Our next stop was in a lakeside park to peruse what Amber described as a collection. I led the way along another path between some large, oddly shaped rocks until I realised that the other two weren't behind me anymore. I retraced my steps and found them both looking at me quizzically, as if I was in the Louvre and had walked right past the Mona Lisa without a glance. Anyhow's your old dad, Dan, it turned out that the odd-shaped rocks were the collection. I didn't get the attraction of these weird-looking boulders. But once Amber explained, as if to a particularly dense toddler, that peculiar, naturally occurring stone formations are fascinating, I still didn't get it. She further explained that Mr. Yu had his own very special collection of misshapen masonry in his veggie plot, and I would be privileged to see that collection if I proved myself worthy over time. This was the first negative thing I'd encountered about Zhuzhou, and I resolved there and then to leave Mr. Yu's stones well alone. Amber then inquired whether I collected anything, and after some consideration, I grudgingly replied, grudges. And it's true, I still remember insults from my childhood just as vividly as more recent humiliations, but have realised lately that I only actively hate someone for 20 years. After two decades, I can't be bothered putting in the effort anymore. Hello, Doug, if you're listening. The weird rocks represented the last step in my orientation, except for a visit to Wonder Mall, a huge, clean, modern shopping centre complete with many Western restaurants and a British bar called the Bull and Bear. Normally, I'd have popped in for a pint, but Mr. Yule didn't seem like the kind of boss you had a drink with. So when they dropped me off at the station, I didn't even ask about my six cans of European beer which I'd left back at the first school. Although I did ask when they wanted me to start, and Mr. Yu surprised me by answering in English, Tomorrow. After friendly goodbyes, they didn't drive away. We all waited awkwardly, nodding whenever we made eye contact, until another car pulled up behind theirs and out came a man I hadn't met with two plastic bags. One held my cans of beer. Hooray! 
The other had a takeaway serving of the chicken and lotus root dish which I'd raved about earlier. Hooray! When he handed them over, I was delighted, but remembered that it's polite to refuse a couple of times before accepting a gift. You say, Booyong! Don't need. Then stop pretending and grab it. It was cold and dark, but only around 6pm. The next train should get me to Lianyungang around 9, and Elena tended to mount her shiny pole around 10 or later. So I felt everything was on schedule. Is it schedule or schedule? Depends which shul you go to. Until the security guard at the x-ray machine told me two things. Train late, she said. And then, pointing at my cans, too much beer. There was nothing I could do about the first problem, but I tried to alleviate the latter by getting rid of a few cans. By drinking them, as I stood waiting for several hours. I stood because there was not a seat to be seen. They were all hidden beneath the buttocks of hundreds of delayed travellers. After a couple of hours, a kiosk selling magazines and cigarettes closed up shop. So I hoisted myself up and perched on its counter. The structure swayed alarmingly, but soon settled down. A security guard, however, would not settle down, as he stared and glared and shouted and pouted until I gave in and hopped down which was when I saw three teenage schoolgirls waving and calling, Sir! Sir! They ushered me to a miraculously empty seat opposite and facing them and started in with the usual questions. Where are you from? Do you like Chinese food? How old are you? Which I answered with unusual courtesy due to their kindness until... A very, very old man shuffled up. In China, you see people every day who are either around 100 years old or perhaps have packed 100 years of experience into 60 or 70. This bloke looked 110 at least. I relinquished the seat with heartfelt apologies, using both Duibuqi and Baochan, meaning not worthy and hold regret, respectively and turned from the supercentenarian to the three culprits. Instead of yelling at them, I adopted my teaching persona and sat them up straight and facing forward, no slouching. I then sang, I'm a... and they sang together after me, I'm a... I gave them each a single word to sing in rising tones and had the great pleasure of tapping out the time and conducting them as they harmonised. I'm a dickhead, 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 dickhead. From their shared looks, they suspected I was taking the piss, but didn't have the gumption to refuse or confront me. The performance earned a round of applause from surrounding passengers and I smiled and bowed my head gratefully as I made my way to another row of seats, plucked a toddler from one, plonked him in his father's lap and took the seat for myself. Another hour or so later, my train finally arrived. At least I assumed it was my train. There'd been no announcements in English, but there was nobody sitting in my assigned seat 
which was surprising given that the carriage was overcrowded with people who'd intended to travel on services due after the one I was booked on. I made the best of things by drinking the remaining beers along the way. Warm, but still welcome. We arrived at Liang Yungang well past midnight, too late to find Elena, and I waited another half hour at least before I snagged a cab. After only a few hours sleep, I excitedly hurried across to the school and thanked Summer for suggesting Suzhou, telling her how much I thought I would love it, all about the city, inviting her to visit me there when I could show her the weird-shaped rocks. I also mentioned that Mr. Yu had wanted me to start immediately, but I stressed to him that I didn't want to leave her in the lurch. I was so enthusiastic I failed to notice that she was smiling and nodding the whole time I spoke. When I finished with, when do you think I could go to Zhuzhou? She, still smiling, still nodding, replied, they don't want you. In the next episode of Party in China, the penultimate I think, but I won't know until I write it, I lose my grip on whatever shred of sanity I still claimed. I'm Party Parslow. Thank you for listening when I have a horrible cold. <coughs> You've been listening to Party in China. For more, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Subscribe to the podcast at Audio Boom, Stitcher, iTunes, or your favorite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.